Somebody's having a good time over there, aren't they? Do you remember, do you remember a time when it was a clear night and you were way out in the country, away from all the city lights, and you had a chance to just stand outside for a while and take a look at the sky? And didn't it seem like that night you were seeing millions and millions of stars? Now, astronomers tell us that actually with the naked eye, all you can really see on a really good night are about 9,096 stars. But didn't it seem like that night there were millions and millions of stars up there? And yet, even then, as we're looking at all those stars, you know and I know that what we're seeing is only a tiny fraction of what's actually up there. Latest estimate I've heard from all the stars we're able to account for with all our satellites and telescopes, uh, astronomers, and of course later on they're going to find even more than this, but at, at the most recent count is they figure there's about three septillion stars. That's a three with 24 zeros behind it. Now I know numbers like million, billion, trillion, septillion, that, that's kind of hard for us to comprehend. You know, anytime we open up a new bank account and we got a number with two zeros behind it, we're really happy. <laughs> so to have a number with 24 zeros behind it, Man, that's, that's mind-boggling. So think of it like this. Think back to a million seconds ago. That's 11 days. Can you remember where you were and what you were doing 11 days ago? Or push the clock back even further. Let's go back a billion seconds. That's 31 years and 8 months. So let's round it off and say 32 years. Do you remember where you were and what you were doing 32 years ago? Some of you weren't even here yet. You hadn't even been born. I mean, we're talking the 1980s, and compact disc player had just been released, and everybody's going to the movie theater to watch Rambo save the world from all the bad guys. That's a billion seconds ago. But let's push the clock back even further. Let's go back a trillion seconds ago, and now we find ourselves in the year 29,000 B.C. So a million seconds ago, that's 11 days ago. A billion seconds ago, that's 32 years ago. A trillion seconds ago, that's 32,000 years. And think about this. We're just talking seconds. We're talking little things, so small, they fly by in a heartbeat. And yet astronomers tell us there's some three septillion stars up there in the sky. And many of those stars are just as big, if not bigger, than our own sun. That's incredible. Now, here's the other thing that fascinates me. Astronomers tell us that some of those 9,000 stars that we're actually able to see on a clear night, some of those stars are so dim, so faint, that if we're going to get a really good look at them, we can't look at them directly, you've got to shift your gaze. Uh, scientists will use the initials AV, and what they're talking about is averted vision. That, that is, some of those stars are so dim that, that you're really not going to notice, you're really not going to catch that star unless you just look a little bit off to the side. And why is that? Well, it's because of the way God made our eyes. God put two different kind of cells in our eyes to help us pick up and detect light. We call them rods and cones. The cones are the cells that are mainly in the middle part of your eye, and they're the cells that pick up the color and the really fine detail. But just off to the center of the eye, and it's always towards the nose. So on your left eye, it's on this side of the eyeball, and the right eye, it's on this side of the eyeball. Off to the center are these cells they call the rods. And the rods are the cells, they don't, they don't pick up any color, and they don't pick up much detail. But the reason why the rods are significant, the rods are the cells that are much more sensitive to light. Which is why on some of those clear nights and we're looking up at the sky and we're seeing all these stars, some of those stars that are really dim, you're not going to see them by looking directly at them. No, you need to just avert your vision, shift your gaze. You know, just a little bit. For the left eye, it'd be this direction. For the right eye, it's always towards the nose, this direction, just a little bit. And because of those rods, those cells that are much more sensitive to light, you'll much more likely pick up the light of that dimly lit star. Now, you're thinking, why in the world are we talking about this? Well, I think sometimes we need to do the same thing with the Bible. 
And I think the scripture that we're going to look, examine today, we're going to study today, is an excellent example of this. Today, we're just going to look at one verse, Psalm 90, verse 12. It's a great verse. It's a verse a lot of people like to use as their life verse. It's a verse that says, Lord, teach us to number our days so we may gain a heart of wisdom. That is, God, help us to see every day is vital. Every day is significant. God, every day is a gift from you, and show us how to treasure that gift so we can make every day count. A lot of wisdom there. But if you only look at just that one verse, and you don't take the time to shift your gaze, to just adjust your vision a little bit, to notice all the other verses around it, to notice what the rest of Psalm 90 is saying, if you don't take the time to do that, I think you'll miss a lot of the light that's actually shining through that one verse. You'll miss a lot of the wisdom that God wants to be able to impart to your life and mine. So this morning, what I want us to do is two things. Number one, we're just going to look at verse 12 and see what it teaches. And then number two, we're going to step back for a moment and shift our gaze and notice all the other verses around and see what the rest of Psalm 90 teaches and see how that other teaching helps to enlarge and enhance our appreciation of what God's trying to share and teach through that verse 12. So take a look at this with me, Psalm 90, verse 12. And in order for us to really appreciate what we're about to read here, I want you to think of something. Think about that day when you were trying to clean out one of your closets. You know, for years and years, you've been stuffing all kinds of junk into that one little tiny space, so much so you can hardly even close the door anymore. So finally, one day you decide, it's time to clean this thing out. And when you decide to do that, what's the very first thing you do? You pull everything out. You pull it all out just so you can see, what have we actually got here? And then you begin to decide, this stays, this goes. Man, why was I hanging on to this? This is just a piece of junk. Hey, I'll keep this, throw this away. In other words, you take time to organize yourself to see, or organize your stuff to see, this is important, this is not. Well, that's what we're being challenged to do in this verse. Pause for a moment. Take stock of your life. Do a little bit of inventory. Realize that over the years, you've been cramming a lot of stuff into your heart and mind. Some of it's good, some of it's not. Some of it's really important stuff, but some of it's nothing but junk, and it's time to get rid of it. So notice what he says. Lord, he's praying a prayer here. Lord, teach us to number our days. Show us how to make every day count so that we can live wisely, we can have a heart of wisdom, a heart filled with your wisdom. Now, we need to be honest, God's being really blunt here. God is basically saying everything dies, nothing lasts forever, and that includes you and me. And we need to take that fact in consideration. Your life in this world will be brief. I mean, before you know it, it's going to be gone. So since that's true, since our time in this world is limited, very limited, then we need to learn how to make that time really count. So God says, don't be foolish. Every day, live wisely. Now, at first, you might think to yourself, well, that's kind of morbid, isn't it? Not really. Think of it from this angle. Uh, think of your favorite food. Let's say it's pizza. Let's say one day God comes to you and says, because your lifespan, David, because your lifespan is limited, you're only going to have 87 more chances to eat pizza. You're only going to have 87 more opportunities to really enjoy the food you love. Does knowing that fact depress me? Does it make me dread eating the, oh, I've only got to eat seven more times. Does that make me dread eating the, no, it does the very opposite. Knowing that I've only got 87 more opportunities to enjoy the food that I really love, that means every time I get a pizza, I'm going to savor every bite I take. Knowing that this opportunity is not always going to be available to me, then every time I've got a chance to eat that pizza, I'm going to make the most of that moment. I'm going to enjoy every single bite. Well, so it is with our lives. 
knowing that our days are limited, now we begin to recognize how important every day is. Every day is vital. Every day is significant. And as a result, we're going to be much more careful what we fill those days with. Do you remember that study that we did a number of years ago as a church called The Purpose Driven Life? And do you remember as a church, as we were reading through that book, you remember the story that was told about James Dobson? He, uh, went, James went to college on a tennis scholarship. He, he was an exceptional player, a champion of the tennis team. And at the end of the year, he won this big tournament. And as a result, he received this huge trophy. Well, James Dobson said he felt really honored when the school wanted to take that trophy and put it in their display case so that for years and years to come, everybody could see and know what a star he was. James Dobson said, I felt so proud. But 30 years later, somebody mailed the trophy to him. They said, hey, the school building was being remodeled, and they found the trophy in the trash can. Seems all those records that James Dobson had set on the tennis court had been broken a long time ago, and there was no need to hang on to the trophy anymore. And he thought, maybe you might want it. And James Dobson said the day he got that trophy in the mail, he said, I learned a very humbling but important lesson, that one day all the trophies of life will wind up in the trash can. I mean, you give it enough time, and eventually somebody with more talent is going to come along and break every one of your records. So all those things you achieved yesterday, it's going to come to the point where it doesn't mean much anymore. Hey, it was nice when it happened 30 years ago, but now 30 years later, it's not a big deal. So what's the lesson? The lesson is this. We've got to learn to invest our life in the things that matter, in the things that last, the things that have eternal value. Like what? Well, how many times have I heard Jerry Schultz emphasize this in one of the classes he teaches? You'll hear him say this again and again. I'm glad he does. He says, when you die, you're only going to take one thing with you. Everything else has to be left behind. When you die and leave this world, you, you, there's only going to be one thing you bring with you. And what is that one thing? Your relationships. Your relationship with God and your relationship with others. There's something that matters. There's something that's really important. There's something that ought to receive a really big investment of our time. But does it? Here's something else we can learn just by looking at verse 12. That in the eyes of God, one is never small. One is always big, always important. You know, how many times do we tell ourselves this lie? Ah, it's just one time. One time won't hurt. It's only a dollar. We'll never miss it. It's only one piece of pizza. That's not going to make me fat. It's only one ball game. So what if I miss it? The kids kids will understand. They'll know I had something more important to do that day. No, 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 no. Turn the coin over. Look at the other side of that lie. Why is it right now you're 50 pounds overweight? And why are you 50 pounds overweight? Because you ate a 50-pound pizza yesterday? No. No, because for days and months and years, you've not been paying attention to your daily routine. Those one-time moments, those one-time decisions where you decided to get a second helping, you decided to have an extra piece of pie. And because you've been making those same kind of one-time decisions over a long period of time, now you've got an extra 50 pounds hanging on your human anatomy. Or think of it like this. How many times do we hear ourselves making this excuse? What good's it going to do? What good will it do that I worked so hard today? I mean, I'm already so far behind on this project. I'm never going to catch up now. Or what good is it going to do to spend some quality time alone with my spouse? The relationship's already too far gone. No, it's not. No, it's not. Psalm 90, verse 12 tells us that one day, that one time, that one moment, it's never insignificant. Because it's those daily decisions to do what is right, that begin to add up over time. You see, in the eyes of God, one's never small, 
it's always big. So that's why God encourages us here. Learn to make every one of your days count. Now, that's, those are just a few of the examples of the wisdom I think you can find by just looking at this one verse. And yet, I think there's a whole lot more to this verse than that. So for a moment, I want us to step back and look at the other verses around it. What does the rest of Psalm 90 have to say and how does its teaching help enlarge our understanding of this particular verse? So, go back to the very beginning of the psalm. I mean the very beginning. Before you even get to verse 1, this is typical of a lot of psalms. Before you even get to verse 1, you have a title, a superscription, okay? And notice what the title says. It tells us two things. Number one, it says it's a prayer of Moses. Moses was the one who wrote this psalm. And he wrote this psalm as a prayer. And because he took the time to think it out, because he took the time to write it out, it's telling us he didn't just pray this prayer one time. He prayed this same prayer again and again and again. And why? Why is he praying this prayer? Because Moses wants to be a man of God. I don't want to just be anybody. I want to be the person that God wants me to be. Well, how's that going to happen when you think about the circumstances that he's in right now? Consider what life is like for Moses as he writes Psalm 90. See, right now, nothing looks good. Nothing looks promising. Nothing looks hopeful. Right now, Moses and the people of Israel find themselves out in the desert where the, the landscape is always barren and ugly. The, every day is hot. Every night is cold. The temperature is never pleasant. They never get a chance to stay in one spot for very long. I mean, they never really get a chance to settle down and unpack the bags because they're always on the move. And yet, though they're always on the move, they never go anywhere. They just keep marching around in circles. And they've been living life like this for almost 40 years. Can you imagine the misery and the monotony? You know, it's like playing a game of Monopoly. Doesn't it seem like every time you go around the board, you either land in that square that says, go to jail, or you land on the spot called Boardwalk. And because somebody's already got a hotel planted there, that means every time you land on Boardwalk, you have to, pass, you have to pay through the nose. So as you're getting ready to make another trip around the Monopoly board, what are you thinking to yourself? What bad thing's going to happen to me this time? That's Moses and the Israelites. And why are they in this miserable situation? Psalm 90, verse 12. Because they didn't learn how to number their days. They didn't learn how to make their days count. Rather than being wise with God's wisdom, they chose to be foolish. Now, this happened many times in many different ways, but let me give you two quick examples. Do you remember how early on in their journey, the Israelites, as they're traveling from Egypt to the Promised Land, God brought them to the foot of Mount Sinai. And they kind of camp out there for a little bit. In fact, Moses has been up on top of the mountain for almost 40 days. And many of the Israelites are thinking to themselves, man, he's been gone a long time. Is he ever coming back down? In fact, the Israelites got to the point where I don't think he is coming back down. So forget Moses. Forget about God. We're just going to take matters into our own hands. I mean, they seem to have forgotten about us. So we're just going to take matters into our own hands. And so they abandon the wisdom of God, and they choose instead to rely on their own instincts. We're going to do things our way, not God's way. So you read Exodus chapter 32. They build a golden calf. They create their own God. Hey, we're going to make the rules. We'll decide what we get to do here. And the Bible says, Exodus chapter 32, they begin to engage in revelry, which means all kinds of wild, reckless, irresponsible behavior. It's like here at the foot of Mount Sinai, they're having this giant party, and the longer the party go, goes, the more things just get out of control. No morals, no boundaries, no structure, just chaos. And instantly, we get an example of what life is like when you leave God out of the picture. 
What does life look like when you decide to do life without God? Well, look at the Israelites at the foot of Mount Sinai. It is not good. You know, it's like a man who's water skiing. You know, here's the boat. It's going along at pretty good speed, and he's hanging on to the rope, and he's just having the time of his life. When all of a sudden he decides, hey, I don't need this rope, and I don't need that boat. I can ski on my own. I can manage this all by myself. And sure enough, as soon as he drops the rope, he goes skipping across the surface of that water for another 30, 40 yards. I mean, he's just skiing on his own, and, and at first it looks like he's doing great. Hey, Mom, look at me, no rope. But the fun only lasts so long. Eventually the momentum disappears, and he comes to a stop, and all of a sudden he's out here with nothing to hold him up. You can't ski without that boat, without some kind of connection to that viable, out resor- viable outside resource. You can't ski on your own, otherwise you just sink. Well, that's the nation of Israel at the foot of Mount Sinai. They've let go of the rope. They've decided to do life without God. And what happens? Everything in their community begins to unravel. It literally begins to fall apart and go to pieces. Now, why is all this important to know? Psalm 90, verse 12. Did you notice the first words? Teach us. See, learning how to make every day count is not something we can figure out on our own. Only God can show us how to fill our days with meaning, value, purpose, hope, and joy. We've got to hang on to that rope. We've got to maintain that connection to God if we want to live well and we want to live wisely. Well, this foolishness at the Israelites' display here at the foot of Mount Sinai, this same kind of behavior happens again and again and again. Until two years later, they come to the edge of the desert and God opens the door to a promised land. A land that's just flowing with milk and honey. A land where the grapes grow to, this, grow to the size of a baseball. I mean, it's, it's marvelous. And yet, instead of trusting God and entering into this marvelous future that he has prepared for them, the people decide to turn back and head to Egypt. They figure they know better than God what's best for them. So finally, God says, okay, they're not going to learn this in any other way. They've got to experience the consequences of their choices. Which means what? For the next 38 years, God's going to have this generation just wander around in the desert until that generation dies off, and he's got time to raise up a new generation, a new generation of people who are willing to trust him and who are ready to enter into the promised land. Now, don't misunderstand. It's not that God has given up on that older generation. He still loves them. I mean, every day he continues to send the manna, the food from heaven. Every day he makes sure the shoes never wear out, the clothes never rip and tear. Even though many of these people become weary of trusting God, God never becomes weary of caring for them. In spite of their sin, in spite of all this rebellion, he continues to love them and help them. But they've got to learn their choices have consequences. You know, think of the mother, this young lady who selfishly gives her baby away in adoption. Thinking to yourself, hey, I'm too young to be a mom right now. I've got other plans for my life. I don't want some kid holding me back. I want to have a chance to fulfill my dreams. And yet, 10 years later, she regrets what she's done. She's really sorry for the choice she's made. Can she be forgiven? Yes. But she may still have to live with the consequences. The painful memories of knowing right now there's a little girl growing up somewhere out there that has no idea who her real mommy is. And if she ever does find out who her real mommy is, she may not want to have anything to do with her when she finds out why her mommy gave her away. Or here's a man who looks back on a life of alcoholism and how his drinking created all kinds of hardships for his family. And as a result, eventually all his children were driven away from home. 
Now, years later, he regrets what he's done. I mean, it's been years since he's taken a drink. He's changed his ways. Can he be forgiven of his sin? Yes. But he may still have to live with the consequences, the, the fact that his relationship with his children may ne- never be fully healed or restored. Well, that's Moses and the Israelites at the time that he's writing this psalm. They have sinned. They have rebelled against God. Can they be forgiven? Yes. But they still experience the consequences. Meaning what? For 38 years, they stay in a desert. And for 38 years, they keep marching around in circles, knowing that every day they're going to have to dig more and more graves, as every day they see more and more of their friends and loved ones die. In fact, Moses has already lost two of the dearest people in his life, his brother and his sister, Aaron and Miriam. And it grieves him greatly. But the thing that troubles Moses the most is the fact that he knows one day he's going to die out in this desert too. He too has sinned and rebelled against the Lord. He too will not be allowed to enter the promised land. And yet it's in this kind of setting that Moses writes this prayer. Lord, teach us how to make every day count so we can live with wisdom. Does Moses really believe that? Out here in the desert where everything right now looks so futile and dismal, out here in the desert where everybody knows they've already failed, they never reached the goal that God had set for them, is it really possible in these kind of circumstances to make your days count? To have a life that's filled with meaning, purpose, hope, and joy? Yes. And why does Moses believe that? Because of God. You see, the theme of Psalm 90 is this. All the way through, he wants us to see that God's not like us. So all the way through Psalm 90, what Moses is doing is he's creating a contrast between God and humanity. Our life in this world is fragile and short. God is eternal. Our days are filled with weakness and failure, but God is always perfect and strong. We frequently make choices that are foolish and naive, and later on down the road we find ourselves wishing we could go back and do things over again. God has no such regrets because he doesn't make those kind of mistakes. His wisdom has no flaws. So that's why Moses, at the very beginning and the very end of the psalm, verse 1 and verse 17, basically says, you want to live well? You have got to depend upon God. Yes, we live in a broken down world. Our world is really messed up, and it's messed up because of us, because we're such messed up people, and we flub up again and again and again. And yet even so, in the midst of all this misery, Because of God, because of who he is and what he's like, he can still do something special in your life and mine. 400 years ago, there was a man by the name of Nicholas Herman, and he wanted to do something remarkable with his life. So he decided to join a monastery. He thought, I'm going to become a man of God. I'm going to study the ancient scrolls. I'm going to learn the truth about the Bible, and I'm going to put myself in a place where I can teach others about Jesus. A noble desire, but it never happened. Nicholas Herman joined the monastery, and yet as soon as he joined, the leaders of the monastery kind of put him through some tests, and they thought, this guy's not bright enough. He's not smart enough to learn the Greek and the Hebrew. Uh, Nicholas, sorry, you're just not qualified to be a monk. The only thing you're qualified to do is work in the kitchen. And so for the rest of his days, years and years, he spent his life fixing breakfast for all the other monks, and every day cleaning up the table and washing their dirty dishes. Now, at first, Nicholas was really discouraged about this. Hey, what's noteworthy about being a dishwasher? What's remarkable about life, your life if you spent nothing but for years and years standing in a sink and washing dirty dishes? It really got him down until one day everything changed. 
One day, Nicholas stepped outside to get a breath of fresh air, took a break from the kitchen. As he's standing outside, he notices this tree, and suddenly it hits him. What is it that causes that tree to flourish? What is the secret to the life of that tree? Why is that tree so big and so beautiful? And then he realized, because it's rooted in something other than itself. Every day it digs its roots deep into the soil to drop the nutrients of the soil in which it's planted. And every day with its leaves and its branches, it reaches high for the sunshine and the rain. The tree flourishes because every day it remains connected to something significant outside of itself. And Nicholas Herman realized, if my life is to have significance, same thing. It's not going to be because of me and what I do. It's going to be because of what I allow the Lord to do through me. So from that moment on, his attitude changed. Now, every morning as he was fixing those omelets for all the other monks in the monastery, as he was fixing the omelets, he literally said, every time I turned the omelet in the frying pan, I literally did that for the glory of God. I was doing what I was doing, not for me or anybody else. I was doing what I was doing for him. And now every day as he stood at the sink washing the dirty dishes, he said, as he was washing the dishes, he would pray. He would pray for every one of those monks by name and pray for them to become a great success in their ministry. And soon there's this enormous joy just spilling out of his life, a huge joy that just every day radiated from his heart, so much so everybody else in the monastery began to notice. So, though Nicholas Herman was never voted to become Pope, though he never became the CEO of a large and famous organization, I mean, he lived his entire life in obscurity, stuck in the background, working in a tiny kitchen. Yet when Nicholas Herman died, his friends got together and collected a bunch of his letters that he'd written over the years, which were kind of like a diary. And then many of them began to recall some of the conversations that they had with Nicholas, and they took all this info, put it together in a little book called Practicing the Presence of God. And over the past 400 years, apart from the Bible, that's become one of the most widely read books of all time. And why? Because 400 years ago, in a 16th century monastery, Nicholas Herman decided to pray the prayer of Moses. God, teach me. Show me, even in this kitchen, God, show me how to make my life count for you. And God answered that prayer in a mighty a poet takes a worthless piece of paper, but he writes a poem on it. And now because of the poem, that paper becomes worth thousands of dollars. An artist takes a blank canvas and he paints a picture, a picture that becomes a masterpiece. And now that it's a masterpiece, that canvas has become more valuable than gold. So Moses claims, Psalm 90, that God can take any sinner, even the worst of sinners, living in the worst of situations, and God can redeem them. And once redeemed, that person's life now has eternal significance. So the question is this, will we learn to pray the prayer of Moses? God teaches how to make every day count. Will we learn to pray this prayer so that now God can do something really special in your life and mine? Let's pray. God, encourage us in every possible way. Encourage us to stay close to you because, God, we can't make it without your wisdom. Every day, God, teach us and show us how to live well, how to live wisely. Because, God, we want to live the life that you had in mind for us. God, may each one of our lives display your glory. 
so that the world around us can see what a great God you are, and so that the world around us can see what a good God you are, and as a result, that they might be encouraged to, to draw near to you. God, it's for your glory we pray today, and we offer this prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.